Amen. Go ahead and take your scripture, if you will, and turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. You know, when we began planning uh, 2016, and of course, around here, you have to plan well in advance for a lot of things to happen. But we were praying as a staff and uh, seeking the Lord uh, back last year and and thinking about the theme for 2016 and who we were and what we'd be about. And we kind of felt God moving us to this idea of multiply. And you've heard me talk about that some of how we should multiply. And what we talked about was this directional multiplication. Now, uh, this isn't new with us. It, it's not like something that we just created. It's something that's around uh, that you'll find in different churches, different um, uh, focus areas for churches. But these three things came to mind, that we would multiply in an upward way in our relationship with God. And we talked about that for quite a while at the first of the year, even into May, as I preached different psalms. And then we talked about multiplying in an outward way, in an outward direction, and also, finally, multiplying in an inward direction. We felt like those three directions somehow uh, would balance us out and help us to see God's goal and purpose for us. Now, obviously, when I started the book of Romans, uh, my mind was around the gospel, the good news. I mean, that is what the core of the book of Romans is about, is basically a, a message that God had laid upon the heart of Paul to share with the Roman believers about the gospel and how that gospel could be multiplied in an outward way to other individuals. Now, that was our hope and prayer. And we, we decided to settle it in this type of season that we're in. The summer, we start in May, we'll go to September, basically, and then we'll hit into this idea of multiply in an inward direction or multiply inwardly. Well... When I think about our goals and our prayers and the scripture, I'm amazed to see what God is doing in our church and in his people. I mean, to be honest with you, I, I, to hear all these different short-term teams that have gone out, you know, just in the last few weeks, whether it was in Montana or it was in uh, New Orleans or all these different areas that we have been in, the family trip up in Chicago that just get, got back, the singles were out in Los Angeles. And to hear reports, I've been getting reports from so many of them. I talked with uh, one of the guys this morning that had gone to Los Angeles, and he was, just, he, he was just overflowing with God's activity in his life and how God had worked when they were there in Los Angeles. And to talk to some of the folks this morning that got back from the Chicago family trip and I mean just amazing and to know that this week we have those going to South Louisiana and those who are going to Chicago and I mean how blessed are we that we can empower and send those short-term teams in addition to the send teams that are there and others that are doing work I mean to me it is amazing now I told our folks in Montana and I'll say this tonight, and you'll probably hear me say this again before too long. Sometimes people will say, well, why do you have to go to somewhere else? I mean, 
we got enough work to do here. Why do you have to send those short-term teams? Well, first of all, uh, I think God calls us to go. I mean, that is the Great Commission, isn't it? He calls us to go. When Jesus spoke to his disciples, he said, you would be here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost. That was what he said. So I think we are to go. I, I, I believe down in my being, down in my heart, that God has called us to go. So it's just an act of obedience, first of all, that we should be about his business in going. But also, as I shared uh, with our group up in Montana, when I talk about going, you realize we're just a very small fraction of the congregation of believers that leave this place, right? That are out of town for a while. Now, I was in uh, Montana. I had 11 of us. If you, well, if you count Dwight, there were 11 of us um, who were up there from our church. Okay, and I know other things were going on that week, but let, let's just say this. I mean, I always, I always hear this and I always do the math when people say, well, what about the work in Ruston and work around our community and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, all for that. The way I figure it, let, let's say, I know there may have been some other people going that week, but let's just say those 11. Those 11 were gone. Now, last year, according to Loy's numbers, right, we averaged 1,025, 1,030, something like that. Thousand thirty in Sunday school, 1,029 in worship. He's trying to say that his Bible study beat me, you know, kind of deal. <laughs> but we averaged that. Okay, so, so that, you know, you got that number. That was the average. That was the average. Okay, average. So I take 11 people away from that. I still have over 1,000. I might decide to take a few children because they are babies and it's hard for them to witness, you know, when they're just six months old. I understand. We take some of those. take some of the other younger, youngest ones out. I think I probably leave around 900 or 800 and something here. Would you agree with me on that? And if I figured this out right, all of us are called to be missionaries. All of us are supposed to be witnessing daily. So I think if I leave 800, 900 people here witnessing and doing what they, they can take care of Rustin. Would you agree with me? I just want to point out because so many people think, oh, we're focused on everything else. No, we're not. No, we're not. You do both and. And what's incredible is God has given us the resources right here in this place to do both and. How blessed we are to be able to multiply and to be able to see God continuing to increase our sending capacity. How blessed we are. And I truly believe, I truly believe this, that the more we go and the more we demonstrate our generous work of the gospel to other people, the more he blesses us here. Because as we are obedient he will demonstrate his grace. He will demonstrate his work among us here as his people. I truly believe that. Well, let me move on because today one of my college students uh, who is up in Detroit texted me and thanked me for not preaching long sermons. It was during the mess, during a worship time that he was in and the preacher had already gone one hour on one point 
and he was concerned he was not getting out of there today. And obviously he had turned his attention to the phone and texting at that point. I did text him later after I got out of church, say, Hey, are you out yet? Are you finally, he said, yeah, hour and a half into it. Some people started walking out. So he closed his message down pretty quickly. I said, awesome. He said, thank you again. I said, when you get back, I want you to stand and tell, uh, our folks, how proud you are of mine, my messages, my short messages. He said, I'll do it in both services, pastor. I'll do it in both services. (laughs) So let me move on in order to, uh, to kind of move through this tonight and not keep you all night long. I want to, I want to move you back to Romans eight, because this is what it's about. It's about multiplying in an outward way. It's about multiplying the gospel. And Paul was all about that. He was trying to continue the work that God had begun there in Rome and among the church. And he was encouraging them and he was, he was presenting to them what the gospel was all about. Romans eight, as I said this morning, really gives us a panoramic view of salvation and God's work. I mean, it is such a chapter, such a passage for us to study because it takes us above all that you can imagine and helps us to look down and see how the salvation and how God's work, how God's involvement in our lives, how it fits together in so many ways. And this is what Paul said as he was writing to the Roman believers there. He said this, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in would do in that it was weak through the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Paul talks about individuals who have been adopted 
into the family. Oftentimes in the New Testament, it speaks about how we have been born again, how we have been rebirthed, how we have been brought into the family through that process. But also you'll find, like Paul speaks here, you'll find those moments where it, where it tells us how we have been adopted into the family, how we have become children of God. John said something like that. John said, basically, for those of us who have received him, he has given us power to become children of God to those who would believe in his name. That's what John said. So we were able to come into his family. So if I'm part of his family, I am adopted into his spiritual family, then what does my life look like? I mean, what do, what do I do? How do I live? I think Paul reminds us of some of these avenues, some of these benefits that he has given us. See, notice, for example, in those first few verses, he basically says, as an adopted child, we are free from, com from condemnation. Listen to what he says again. There is therefore for now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. God has done a work in our hearts. He's done a work in our lives. Now, we obviously have to understand verse 1 in context of what Paul has been saying. I mean, at the end of chapter 7, he really set the context for us. Chapter 7, verse 24. Go back to that a moment. Look, Paul is... Paul has been talking about how he's in this constant warring of life where it's like he has the old person that's warring against the new person and how he wants to do certain things and seems like he can't do certain things. Remember those passages where it's just like a struggle for him. And then he says this in verse 24 of chapter 7. He says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says, here I am going back and forth, and I know what sin is doing. Who would deliver me from this body? Who would deliver me from this death in particular? Verse 25, I thank God. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. What does he say? He basically says, I thank God. I thank Christ Jesus. I recognize that God, Christ Jesus, has freed me from this sin. So thus, I do not have to live under condemnation any longer. I said this this morning, but what an incredible statement. What an incredible statement that you and I can walk right now. Because notice the word that's used there, the word now. He's not talking about just the future. I know this morning we focus more probably on what God was going to do and our hope and all of that. But here, he's talking about right now. We can live in a sense of freedom. We can live knowing that condemnation does not, it does not master us. It does not rule over us. We have freedom in him. I think that's incredible because all of us, all of us in our sin deserve death. And all of us in our sin deserved a guilty charge before a holy God. I mean, Paul had taught that and shown that all throughout the book of Romans up to this point. And now he says, 
We don't have to stand condemned. We don't have to stand before him guilty. We don't have to do that because we are his children. We have received his life. Paul uses that phrase that he uses so often in the New Testament. He says, to those who are in Christ Jesus. So for those who have experienced life in him, they have experienced the reality of who he is in their lives, then they can stand without any condemnation. You know, so many times in our lives, so many times in our lives, we can get caught up in the the guilt and the different things that come our way. Now, look, God certainly comes and he convicts us, and that's a good thing when he convicts us to bring us back to the right way. But some of us, some of us, it's difficult to get past the guilt. And I've noticed this, maybe noticed in my life, and you've probably noticed in yours, Satan has a way of bringing up some of those old things. He is the accuser, after all. He would stand to accuse you and to accuse me and to point out all these different things that we've done in our past, the different things that we're not proud of, the different things that we may be ashamed of. If we're not careful, we allow Satan's narrative to dictate our story daily. But you know what? God has called us to look at the accuser He has called us to speak back to the accuser. He has called us to recognize that we do not live under condemnation anymore, but we live under the life of the Lord Jesus. And now we live in freedom and we do not have to be, we do not have to be mastered by those things of the past, the guilt of the past. We are free and we are free indeed. Think We need to recognize that, that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Now, it wasn't because of our own goodness. We know that. I'm not standing before him in my own righteousness. Paul's already addressed that. I stand before him clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation. So, as an adopted child, I'm free from condemnation. As an adopted child, I have his leadership in my life. Notice those verses from 5 on down to basically verse 14. It talks about the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is mentioned so many different times here in these verses. It is said that through the chapter, this eighth chapter, that every other verse, on average, every other verse mentions the Spirit of God on average in the number of occurrences. Here in these verses, the Spirit of God is pointed out as the one who leads us and guides us. Now that now that I'm saved, now that I'm a son of God, now that I am following, He is providing leadership for me. Verse 14 really keys on this. He says, for as many as led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You know, in our families, when we have children who are coming up, 
we as parents, we provide instruction for them. We help them grow and we teach them certain things. We lead them in certain ways. And we always want to lead them in a good and wholesome way. I think all of us who are parents or grandparents want to do that. I mean, we are, I think, as the New Testament teaches, we are those who want to give our children bread and not some type of thing that would injure them or hurt them. We want to give them what is good. We all want to do that. So now that I'm adopted into the family, God is wanting to lead me and guide me into those things that are good and wholesome for me as well. And the Spirit of God is what leads me. I think we miss this so many times in our churches because we forget that it is the Spirit that must be leading us. Now, how does the Spirit primarily speak? I think primarily He speaks through God's Word here and the Spirit involves Himself in our lives in such a way. He speaks clearly. The Spirit leads us. It's just natural that if you are a child of God, the Spirit lives in you and He leads you. I mean, again, if you hear what Paul says here, you cannot be a child of God unless the Spirit of God lives in you. Would you agree with that? I mean, I know there's this teaching out there that, well, there are Christians... And then there are like souped up Christians. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, there are the Christians, and, and, but then there are those who have really received another blessing in their life and they've really gotten more of the Holy Spirit and, and, um, <clears throat> and, and thus they are just these, these wonderful believers. That's what I hear sometimes. But that is an unbiblical picture of the Spirit of God. An unbiblical picture. Here, even here, he says that you must have the Spirit of Christ in you. You must have the Spirit of God in you for you to be saved. For God to work. I mean, God must come and indwell you. Regenerates you, indwells you, baptizes you, and seals you at the moment of, of salvation. I'll preach on that one day. But I love that little acrostic. Ribs. I was taught that at Blue Mountain. They knew that food always communicated with me, so they would put these kind of acrostics like ribs. The Holy Spirit, at the moment of my salvation, what does he do? He regenerates us and dwells us, baptizes us, and seals us. At the moment of my salvation, when I say, God, I want you to come into my life and save me, this is what he does. So he dwells in me. See, the point is that, that I think we need to make to people is that we, we don't get any more of him. It's how much of us we're willing to yield to him. In other words, when I get saved, I got all of Jesus. I need, his spirit is in me and dwells in me at that moment. I got all the Holy. I didn't get half the Holy Spirit. I didn't get just a partial point. I, I, I hate this idea of that, that people say that they have the full gospel. I, I just can't stand that. Why? Because it somehow speaks to the idea that I have a half gospel. I don't have a half gospel. I don't have a half of a Christ. I don't have half of the Spirit of God in me. I've got the fullness of God himself living in me, the Spirit of God. And it's not so that I'm praying every day, God, I want more of you in me. No. My prayer each day should be, God, I want you to have more of me. I yield myself to you. 
I surrender myself to you. I want to be led by you. Because as we talked about this morning, the Spirit is the one that knows the will of the Father. Remember in verse 27 we read, the Spirit of God can pray for us because He knows the will of the Father. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they have been in perfect communion and fellowship for all eternity, and they will continue to be through all eternity. They share one purpose. They share one will. And thus, if the Spirit is guiding me, and no doubt He is going to be guiding me in the Father's will. He knows it. He is going to lead me in that way. But what God wants me to do is daily surrender. Daily surrender. Submit myself to the Spirit of God and His leadership. Now, this is probably a little more than you asked for. But don't miss this as well. If we believe that the Spirit of God lives in every believer, we believe that. Then that means that God can use other believers to speak to us and help us to confirm the Spirit's leadership. Now, I'm not saying that you just have to depend on other people to tell you what to do. I'm not saying that. I got a lot of people that come and say, tell me what to do. Whoa. It's not about me telling you what to do. It's about me joining you in prayer, seeking the counsel of the Spirit of God, and allowing the Spirit to speak within us and so that He confirms among His people what we should do. Listen, I think we, we have missed it in our contemporary church and the modern day church i think we've missed so much of this in the days past the church would speak as the spirit of god would lead them and they would speak to different ones whether it was about this individual that needed to go into ministry or whether it was some other work that this individual had it's kind of like that acts moment where paul and barnabas are set aside where the Spirit of God speaks to the church and the church listens and sets them aside for that first missionary journey. I mean, God spoke to the believers because the Spirit was living in each believer and God spoke in His way. I, I, I really believe that we have forfeited a little bit of God's wisdom because we have not relied upon the fellowship of believers, the church itself, to help us discern what His will is for our lives. I think these are valuable resources we have sitting all around us tonight. And too many times we do not avail ourselves of the resources He's given us. People that would pray for us, people that would help us work through it. And yet, God wants to lead us as an adopted child I have his leadership, a spirit-filled leadership. Also, I live in an intimate relationship, basically because I'm an adopted child. Notice verse 15, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. How amazing is that? 
that what God now has done is transformed our hearts, which were hostile toward him. He has brought us into the family, and he has established an intimate relationship with us. I know many of you have heard the preachers talk about this idea of Abba Father, and we know that Jesus used that same terminology. And, and as many preachers have pointed out, it is a term of intimacy. Some people may say, Daddy, Daddy. My kids, they've come up. I don't remember exactly how it started. Some of you know this in family life. You don't know exactly how some of these things start, but it just kind of sticks. You know, I am da, just simply da. And to hear my children call me that, well, sometimes it can be aggravating if I know what they're coming with. But so often, too, there is tenderness in that. That they would call me that. A term of endearment. Of the relationship I have. The God of this universe. The God of this universe loved you and he loved me so much. That he did send his one and only son. To die on the cross. So that we. Might also be able to enjoy that sonship that title as son or daughter and so that we might be able to cry out that daddy father what an amazing picture of adoption being brought into the family as he worked in our lives so that we could enjoy that relationship. We shouldn't miss it. We shouldn't miss the intimacy daily. That we can have with him. That you and I can go before him. And we can call out to him. And we can pray to him. And we can speak to him. That we can just relate to him. We shouldn't miss that. Because we can have that intimate relationship with him. Now again... I don't want to give too far off script, but it also reminds me that we have intimate relationship with one another as believers. Because if you can call him Abba, and I can call him, that means that we are siblings. And Paul even used the word in verse 12, therefore brethren. So that means we're part of the family. We are a family. I love that image that he gives of the church as the family you are my brother and you are my sister because of what Christ Jesus has done and it should that should bring us together in our relationships and there should be close intimate relationships now I do want to say this it doesn't mean that you're going to be as close to everybody in this church as, as you think you should be, okay? You're probably not going to be. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying to you that you ought to have believers in your life that you have these intimate relationships with. And you know what? Even though you may not know certain people or see them, 
if you need help and there is something that's going on in your life, then the family itself ought to be able to have your back, right? You may not have seen cousin Joseph for some time, but if cousin Joseph, if he bears the blood of your family, then he ought to be one that would come and do whatever it would take to help you, right? Well, think about those of us who are bound in the blood of Christ Jesus. No greater, no greater tie than that, than the blood of Christ. And somehow we ought to enjoy that intimacy. Thanks be to God that we not only have an intimate relationship with him, but we can have an intimate relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, with the church, with the family. Finally, I'd say this. Because I'm an adopted child of the king above, I am an heir. I'm not going to go into this uh, in depth tonight because we covered a lot of it this morning. But because I'm adopted, I'm, a, I'm an heir. I'm a co-heir with Christ Jesus. That's what it says in verse 17. I have an inheritance. Now, the Romans would have known all about adoption. They would have known it was very common in their culture. Oftentimes patrons would adopt other individuals so that they would be able to carry on their name and also they would be able to carry on their inheritance. In Rome itself, Augustus Caesar was adopted by Julius Caesar to be able to, to, be able to carry on the title and to carry on the inheritance. The people in Rome would have known all about this. And now... Paul looks at them and says, you know, you've heard about the adoption and you've seen it experienced and even at the highest levels of the Caesars, you've seen it. And he says, you've been adopted by God above and you have an inheritance and you may suffer. You may go through difficulty now, just as we talked about this morning. There may be tragedies you see all around you. But what you see ahead is the glory that's been prepared. The glory that's been prepared and the glory that has been promised. You are a rightful heir to what God has prepared. Glory itself. What a tremendous work, this work of adoption. What a tremendous benefit to our lives. How it informs us daily that we would walk in him and not in this world and not of the flesh. May we rejoice in it tonight. May we live with the responsibility of it tomorrow as we serve him in every way. Let's pray. Father, we praise you. We thank you. We didn't deserve it. But God, in your grace, you reached down and you brought us into your family. And no doubt, Lord, you've set us free. <laughs> There's no condemnation. Father, you are leading us. You've placed us in intimate relationships. Lord, you've prepared something for us so much better than here. And Lord, our hearts overflow with the gratitude for what you have done and what you've accomplished. God, I pray for every one of us here that we would strengthen our 
familial bonds. Father, that we would take this good news and this gospel that you've given us and that we would share it with others because we would want others to join the family as well. Father, we pray that we would just represent you. Lord, as your sons and your daughters, as we go out, we pray that we would just reflect your character, your personhood, so that others could know the life that we do. We pray it now in Jesus' name. <music>